So if you're joining us today, maybe for the first time, we've been studying through the book of Acts for the last year and some, and we find ourselves getting very close to the end. We're in chapter 27. Paul's traveling with the help of the Roman centurion on a boat from Caesarea near Israel all the way out to Rome is where he's heading and a full expense paid trip courtesy of Rome. But it doesn't go all that well. I know that sometimes in our own lives, we expect and God says, okay, Steve, I got this for you. And we expect him the straight path, right? But how many of you have lived long enough to experience the fact that God's path is often a little different than the one we expected? And Paul certainly finds that out. He's in the midst of this boat. He warns them not to travel. It's a bad season for traveling. And uh, they decide to set sail anyway. They find themselves in a typhoon with this wonderful dinosaur kind of name, Eurachlodon. That was chapter 27. They end up fearing for their lives. And now as we left off, they were sort of breaking bread, Paul leading them in breaking bread, giving thanks to the Lord in the midst of this tremendous raging storm in the Mediterranean Sea. And they give thanks and they uh, cast all the grain off the ship. And that's where we left off in verse 39. They're waiting out the night so that in the daytime they can kind of head for this island, this landmass that they have found to be near. So verse 39 says, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. So they didn't recognize the island. We know the island is called Malta. This bay that they recognized to this day now has the name St. Paul's Bay. The wind is still raging. The waves are still raging. The rain is coming down. They have been starving for two weeks, not eating, being tossed around on the sea, being blown by the winds. They've put down anchors and they've held themselves in place and waited out the night. How many of you have ever had a night like that where you're just kind of waiting for the morning? And that's the night they had. And now the day breaks and uh, morning is coming and they see the land, but they don't know where they are. They're not exactly sure what this island is, but they did see the bay with the beach and they're going to run the ship if possible into that landmass and try to keep from, again, perishing in the ocean there. Verse 40 says, so they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for sure. So all these things are very accurate nautical kind of practices and terms. Notice they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. So they had put those anchors down. Why? To hold them in one place to keep them steady during the night. And so the anchors were there and in the midst of the storm and all the winds and the waves so that they would be able to be stable and steady at that time. And now they cut the anchors loose. And as I was reading that, I was thinking about just my own life and our lives and the world we live in and thinking about anchors in my life, anchors in your life. Those anchors are things you know you have to be anchored to something that's immovable. It's not worthwhile to anchor yourself to something else that's unanchored, right? Then you both end up drifting. So you have to have an anchor or multiple anchors in your life that keep you steady, especially in the darkness, especially in storms and in chaotic times. Because, you know, we live in a world with tons of drama. There's no lack of drama, right? Just cut on the news. They're glad to tell you about all the drama going on, not just here, but around the world. There's drama everywhere. And it's so easy to get sucked into that chaos, isn't it? So what are the anchors in your life? What is it that you find stability and security in and from? And is that something you can? Everybody has it. Everybody has something somewhere they find security, something they run to, a refuge, or something that they think is stable. 
or they hope is stable, to hold them through times of darkness and chaos. And I was thinking about that in my life. I've been a Christian for about 23 years now. And I was thinking in my own life about those four anchors, because remember, they put out four anchors. So I'm going to give you four anchors from the book of Acts, things that in my life have been pillars that have gotten me through the last 23 years of my life, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Acts 2.42, maybe some of you are familiar with that. Those are four anchors in my life that have been steady throughout whatever I've been through, from getting married to having kids to changing jobs to changing churches to whatever comes and goes to now aging parents and all these different things that come and go in our lives. Kids off to college, daughter got married. There's a lot of stuff going on. But through all of that, the Word of God, staying steady in the Word of God is an anchor for me. And then fellowship. You see, here's the problem. So many people, well, they've only got three anchors. That Word of God, well, I come Sundays, but you know, I don't really read on my own. So you've got three anchors. Well, three anchors is better than no anchors, right? Well, What happens is you're not reading the Word of God, you're coming to church, but then because you're not in the Word and the Word's not guiding your life, then that other anchor of fellowship, well, life gets busy, doesn't it? Fellowship meaning joint participation. And life gets busy and things happen and seasons change and we go from soccer season to vacation season to baseball season and, well, there's seasons in life. And now, well, we used to be able to get there regularly, but now things are too busy now. And then fellowship begins to get squished out of your schedule, doesn't it? Sometimes it's the things of God that are first to go. Life is busy, so we don't have time for God. And then, boom, another anchor is cut and left in the sea. And then if you're not coming to church, well, we're not going to go to church. We'll just stay home and we'll watch Joel Osteen. And you can do that. That's fine. A lot of people stay home and watch Joel Osteen. But try to see if Joel Osteen is going to come when you got to go to the hospital. Try to see if Joel Osteen is going to come and break bread with you. Or Charles Stanley. I just pulled Joel Osteen out of the hat, so to speak. Could be anybody on TV. Charles Stanley, whatever. The point is, is that that's fine. You can get the word from that on TV, but that's not a substitute for koinonia, for fellowship. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Joint participation with others in the body of Christ. And then coming from that is we eat together. We break bread together. The breaking of bread. We sit at the family table together. That's how you know you're part of the family. You're invited to sit at the table. And so if you're not coming to church, then you're probably not sharing communion and breaking bread. And then, well, I'm praying, but my prayer life is mostly, God, here's what I need from you, not God speaking to you. And so sometimes those, well, again, prayer, I don't really have time for that. So it's easy, as I look at this, they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. And you think about our country. You think about the country we live in and the anchors that used to be there things you grew up with, things I grew up with, and how these anchors are being cut away. The anchor of truth. Now you talk to kids, well, that truth is whatever it feels, whatever it feels like, whatever works for you. That's what's truth. Truth is relative. So we're tossed about in the sea of relativity, relativism. Things that there's no real truth. There's just, there's just whatever you feel is right or whatever you feel is right. If it works for you and you feel good about it, you know, and cut those anchors of truth. And we wonder why everybody's just tossed around in the sea. So I want to encourage you, have you let loose some anchors that used to be there for you? I mean, they were anchors, there were things in the Word of God, prayer time. When's the last time you just spent time with the Lord besides the three minutes at church on Sunday? Since I was saved 23 years ago, man, I don't come to church because I have to. 
I come to church because I need to. I need you guys because I need unlovable people to love. That was a joke. (laughs) And you need me because you need unlovable pastors to love. We need each other because we're all in this together. I need people. That's how God expresses himself. He wants to express himself to you through me loving you on his behalf. How do you do that if you're home watching Joel Osteen? Hey, honey, pass the chips. You know, I, I don't know how you do that. But just asking the question as I read about ships and think about waves and chaos, and I like to not get sucked into drama. So to avoid that, and I know what I'm capable of. So I don't get in the Word because I'm just checking it off the list. I get into God's Word because I need God to speak to me. Not something He spoke to me 10 years ago. I need a Word for today. Lord, what do you have for the church today? And we pray over that. And to just have fellowship. And I appreciate you guys and what you've meant to me in my life. And, and I hope it's likewise for you. So they let loose the anchors and they, they hoisted the mainsail. They headed for shore. Striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. This is verse 41. And the prow stuck fast. This is of the ship and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So you get a sense of the catastrophic nature of the storm. It's still raging. It's tearing the ship apart. The boards are coming apart as the waves crash against the ship. By the way, historians, archaeologists have discovered at least eight shipwrecks in this area. At least eight ships have been uncovered. They're still searching for Paul's boat. I don't know how they'd know it if they found it. Paul may be inscribed, you know, Paul was here, 62 AD. Uh, Don't worry, Luke, you'll understand later. Verse 42, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. You see, the soldiers were responsible for handing the prisoners over when they reached their destination. And if the prisoners escaped, you guys know what was the penalty of the soldier? You had to incur the penalty of the prisoner whom you let go. Some of these guys maybe were murderers, guilty of treason or insurrection against the Roman government or whatever they were there for. If they jumped ship and swam away and escaped, then the soldiers would be responsible for that and they would get whatever penalty, whatever judgment was due those prisoners. So they're like, hey, let's just kill them all. That way we know where they are. But this is not going to go well for Paul, right? Paul is one of those prisoners. And what did God say to Paul? Paul, you're going to get to Rome. So is Paul in Rome yet? So how is God going to step in and make sure Paul doesn't get killed with the rest of the prisoners? Well, look at verse 43. But the centurion, remember his name from the last chapter or from the earlier in this chapter? His name is Julius. And he was the one that dealt kindly with Paul. He kind of has a heart for Paul. So he's the guy in charge, the centurion, wanting to save Paul. Can you just circle that, the centurion, and maybe right next to that, God? God, wanting to save Paul, used the centurion to preserve his life. And then kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Uh, That would not be me. You guys know me. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land, just as God said. Now, you know me, not a great swimmer, jumping into that stormy sea, I don't think so. So I'm doing the second part, I'm going on a board, a boogie board, a surfboard, something, or some part of the ship. They were hanging on to anything for dear life to get washed ashore. Now, 
276 people on the boat. Every one of them makes it to the shore. These guys are beaten. They're hungry. They're exhausted. They're green with seasickness. This is a brutal situation. As they wash up on shore, they could probably barely even move. Now, verse 1 of chapter 28 says, Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. So evidently some people heard the shipwreck happening. They heard the voices, whatever it was. The locals find out and they find out the name of the island is Malta, which is really cool because Malta is a Canaanite word. These are Phoenicians on this island. They're not Romans. They're they're not the church. They're uh, Phoenicians or from Phoenician heritage. And the name is Malta, which means refuge. Man, how many people whose lives are shipwrecked they talk to you or you talk to them and say, you know, just come on down to our church. Why don't you just come and, and try God? Everything else has left you empty. Everything else has left you shipwrecked. You tried that scheme. You tried that plot. You tried those people and everything else has left you empty. Let me tell you about a place of refuge. It's called Jesus Christ. It's not a place, but it's a person. And hopefully you can find him at our church. I'm not sure you can find him at a lot of churches these days. But I pray and I think you can find Jesus Christ here. So the island is called Malta. Look at verse 2. We're going to camp out on verse 2 for a little bit. So just to warn you ahead of time. Uh, verse 2 says, And the natives showed us unusual kindness. Underline that. Double underline that. That's really important. The natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So these people wash ashore many of them prisoners, some of them possibly murderers, and they run aground, they wash up on the beach, and the natives, did you see that? Luke writes the word natives. If you have a different Bible version, maybe your Bible version says barbarians. Now, don't think barbarians like they're carrying clubs and wearing animal skins. The word barbarian just means someone who doesn't speak Greek, someone who's uncultured. That's like thinking that if someone doesn't speak English, they're stupid or they're not cultured. And that's how the Greeks felt. Greek culture was the pinnacle. So if you didn't speak Greek, whatever your language was, it would sound to them like blah, 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 or bar, bar, bar. That's what this word means. Barbarian is bar, bar. And it's just a a word that sounds like what it is. You just speak gibberish. That's what barbarian is. So Luke is acknowledging these people didn't speak their language. So now they're trying to communicate and they're having language difficulties. But they did speak a language that everybody knows. And that's the language of kindness. And not just the usual kindness. They could have spoken the language of suspicion. They could have talked to them and heard the story. Yeah, we should have stayed put on that last place we were in harbor, but we decided to try to press on. We got caught in the storm. And they could have said, well, that was really stupid. You're on your own. You made your bed. You lie in it. They could have been unusually critical or unusually judgmental. But instead, these natives, by the way, they're not Christians. These people on the island, they were unusually kind. The word for kindness is the Greek word philanthropia, where we get our very well-known word philanthropy. Now, it's easy to think about Bill Gates when we think about philanthropy, people with lots of money. The word simply means love of mankind. And it's the same word that was used of Julius's treatment of Paul. When Julius the centurion treated Paul with kindness, same word, love of mankind. Julius, a centurion, a Roman guy, Paul, a Jewish prisoner. But yet, what do they share in common? They're both human. These people that have landed on the island, some of them criminals, some of them travelers, what do they all share in common? All human. 
love of mankind. We know from philanthropy as well, so-and-so gives a billion dollars, or this person gives a million dollars, they're working to end sex trafficking. They're working to build schools in Africa. They're working to do cancer research. People with lots of money. But that's them. Certainly that doesn't apply to me. Well, I think you see in this case the unusual kindness. And don't you think we need some unusual kindness these days? The unusual kindness wasn't giving lots of money, although that sometimes can be part of it. But the unusual kindness, watch how the unusual kindness actually happened. People washed ashore, and the natives of the island had to say, wow, it's raining, they're soaking wet, they've obviously been through a tremendous ordeal, they're very cold, they're probably shivering, who knows how cold the waters are. What can we do to help them? So they say the best thing we can do right now is build them a fire, make them feel welcome. And that's the kindness that they show them. That's something everybody can do, right? That takes the ability, the higher ability, the godly ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. So rather than philanthropy, I'm going to use the word empathy. And this is a word, mark my words, this is a word we should talk about a whole lot in the church, in our schools, in our homes. Empathy. Well, let me tell you what it's not. Empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is to feel with someone. Hey, I can feel for you, but I can't reach you. In other words, sympathy is going, wow, it must really stink to have your house flooded if you live in Texas. That must be horrible. Can't imagine it. But at least you have a house. But at least this or at least that. I can feel for you, but I can't reach you. Empathy is the ability to step inside the shoes of another person and understand things from their standpoint. It's to say, hey, tell me about or help me understand why that works that way in your life or how you got there or what you've been through. I've learned this as being a pastor for the last, I don't know, 15, 16 years. Everybody's got a story. And the behavior you see on the outside is always linked to something deeper. And when the church, when you as an individual take time to probe a little deeper as to why that person is like that, we tend to be a lot less judgmental and a lot more compassionate. That doesn't mean we agree. That's part of the thing with empathy. Empathy doesn't mean we agree on something, but it means, hey, you're human and I'm human. And we find that just by the nature of being human, you deserve kindness because God is kind, right? God is kind, by the way, Jesus said, God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's compassion. Empathy is described as understanding the feelings and thoughts of other people, the ability to put yourself in their shoes, to understand things from their perspective. Let me see if I can give you a couple examples. One example I'll just give you from my own life. It's about a guy named Joe Schlimmer. And I don't know where he lives now. When I was probably 12, 13 years old, I played Little League baseball. And my dad was the coach. Now, all-star season came around and we would take from each team three all-stars, put together an all-star team and go play other all-star teams. And I played shortstop or third base and my dad was the coach and Joe Slimmer was the pitcher. Joe had one of those dads, you know, one of those baseball dads that no matter what he did, his father would always lay into him from the sidelines. He would always get in trouble with his dad. It was never good enough. His dad was real hard on him and you could just watch his countenance fall. And all season we watched this. And Joe was a pretty good baseball player. I mean, not as good as me or anything like that, but he was pretty good. <laughs> so the team voted for all-stars and the votes came in and vote for your top three. And so I was one of the three all-stars. I mean, just saying, I was one of the three all-stars. 
on the team. I was 12 or 13 at the time, and I joke about these things. But uh, my dad pulled me aside that night. My dad, of course, knew the votes, and no one else did. And he said, Steve, I want to tell you, I've got two things to tell you. I said, okay, Dad, what's up? Well, number one, you made the all-star team. Oh, great, that's awesome. Number two, I'm going to give your spot to Joe Schlimmer. So wait a second here. What about my vote? Well, my dad, in that moment, was teaching me compassion. He was teaching me empathy. He was helping me to feel another person's plight and to understand that I can do something to help that and that he could do something to help that. So understanding life for Joe and how it was to have a father who is hard on him like that, that we could exchange my spot on the team to give him a spot, and that would be a blessing to him. That's called empathy. That's what God did. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me give you a couple other empathy verses from the Bible. And I'm belaboring this because empathy, from what those that study these things are saying, empathy is on the decline. Social media, we have friends, but we're really not in contact. And the social media takes us away from feeling a responsibility for who? For our neighbor. What's the greatest empathy verse in the whole Bible? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a verse that speaks of empathy. How about a couple more? John said in 1 John, if you're rich and you see others in need and yet you close your heart against them, how can you claim that you love God? Because God on the cross saw our pitiful state, stepped into our suffering and our reality, not just to be here, but to feel what we felt. We have a high priest who is not distanced or dissociated from our sufferings. He suffered the same things we suffer so he could lead us to salvation. So he says, how can you love God if you see a need, if you see someone in need and go, hey, I'll pray for you. That's what James said. My friends, what good is it if one of you says that you have faith if your actions don't prove it? Can that faith save you? Suppose there are brothers or sisters who need clothes and don't have enough to eat. What good is there in your saying to them, oh, God bless you. Keep warm and eat well. Hey, let me pray for you. If you don't give them the necessities of life. See, that's empathy. So it is with faith. If it is alone and includes no actions, then it is dead. James is the same one that goes on to say, pure and undefiled religion before God is this. Visit widows and orphans in their trouble and keep yourself unspotted from the world. So part of that is empathy too, right? Seeing a need, and then thinking about what it must be like to be them, or maybe you have been them at one point. Think about how this idea, this understanding would radically change the relationship between parents and their children. What if parents could be more empathetic toward their kids? And what if kids, uh, hang with me, church. I know we're getting to the land of miraculous. What if kids could be more empathetic toward parents? I know dad had a long day. I'll empty the dishwasher for them. Oh, we can dream, can't we? We can dream. But maybe we need to spend less time anti-bullying and more time pro-empathying, right? How does one develop empathy? I'm not an expert on such things, but I know that having an empathetic God come and live in my heart certainly could do the job, right? God is kind to the unthankful and the evil, and we could go on and on about the story of the Good Samaritan. That's an empathetic story. 
where he sees the need of the man that's been beaten and left for dead. It doesn't just go, man, that stinks. That poor guy, he should have been smart enough not to walk on this road at night. Well, guess that's his problem. Instead, trying to understand, well, maybe he uh, had somewhere to be or maybe he was in an emergency. What if drivers were more empathetic? Especially now that we have a new circle. So some people don't know which way to go around that thing, right? Poor thing, they're confused, right? What if we were more empathetic as drivers? What if kids were more empathetic toward each other? Hey, I know your parents have been through an ugly divorce. You grew up in a foster home or your dad drinks a lot. What I'm saying is everybody's got a story. Now the church, because of the empathy of God, because of the compassion of God, he sees our need and he steps into it. The church, that same God lives in us. The church should be off the charts in terms of the ability to see shipwrecked people. No, not shipwrecked on a boat. We're not near the ocean. But shipwrecked on the ship of life. I mean, their lives have come apart. And God wants to redeem them. He wants to restore them. And I think empathy is something that many churches lack. And I pray that it's not so here. From what I can gather, I think you guys are doing a pretty good job. Because we invite people in that are hurting, that are broken, that they've been subject to all kinds of sinfulness against them and their own sin destroying them. You see, church should be a place where a person can come and find unusual kindness. Don't you think? But see, that means that you're going to have to be a person that gives unusual kindness kindness. Because you and I, we are the church. So that means you're going to have to go, ah, I need to be more understanding of people and less judgmental of people. Less criticism, more love. Changes everything. You see, there was years ago on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a little hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give up their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they had used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a symbolic lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some of the members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. 
But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station somewhere down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that sea coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. So I don't think I need to make the connection for you. I think you get the connection 100%. And I told you we'd be camping out on this verse for a little bit just because it just lends itself to saying, hey, everybody that comes in that door has a story, including you and including me. And if God is going to use us and form his character in us, that is going to be a mean, we're going to have to be a people of unusual kindness. And so is that you? Would you consider yourself or would someone else say of you, is very compassionate? Are you one that takes time to understand where others are coming from? Try to think about life in their shoes. Try to think about what's going on in their lives and how they've come to this place today and try to work through that and meet them where they are. If not, then I pray that God would put his character into you. Maybe it's that you need to get saved. Maybe you've not experienced the love and the kindness of God. One more verse I'm going to read and we'll press on. This is Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves, listen, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see, people come in, they're coming out fresh from the sea. God, we catch them, you clean them. And they're coming in fresh and they're hateful and they're dysfunctional and they're hurting and they're broken and they're angry and they're bitter, just like we used to be. But when the kindness and the, listen, love of God, our Savior toward man, that's the same word in the book of Acts, philanthropia. When the philanthropy of God, when God's love toward mankind came to me, remember God so loved the world that he gave? When that came to me, not by works of righteousness, which I had done, but according to his mercy, he saved me. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That same passage uh, further down goes on to say uh, to Titus, he says, and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. And I hope that is a verse that this church lives up to. Let's be ready to maintain good works to meet urgent needs. Amen, church? All right, back to Acts 28, back to Paul. The rain is falling. The fire has been built. Paul, who certainly could have sat back and said, you know, I've been through a lot. You guys build the fire. I'm going to chill. I'm going to preach the gospel a little bit. Verse 3 says, but when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. So Paul ain't just sitting back. Paul's in there. One of the ways you tell a person who's a godly person is they just can't help but serve. They don't make excuses for not serving. They make opportunities to serve. So Paul says, hey, people are gathering sticks. Where do I gather? Hey, people are taking out the trash. Hey, let me get this trash can. Hey, people are doing, let me help. And that's what Paul's attitude was. Paul, he had gathered a bundle of sticks and he laid them on the fire. Next part of that verse says, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Hi. I mean, if you're the apostle Paul, if I'm the apostle Paul, I'm going, God, 
hello, when is enough enough? I mean, I've been in prison for three years or for more than two years for sure. I've been shipwrecked. You know, we swum ashore and now a viper bites me on the head. A poisonous snake latches onto Paul. So it's been sleeping there in the sticks. And when they get near the fire, this thing jumps out and grabs on Paul's hand as a poisonous snake. I don't know if Paul starts screaming. How many of you love snakes? Oh yeah, lots of people love, how many of you hate snakes? Yeah, how'd you like to have one latched onto your hand, right? And not only that, it's a copperhead. So I'm sure Paul recoiled and and everybody's seeing this happen. So when the natives, verse four, saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So that word justice, it could be, it's a small j, but it's speaking of their god or the goddess who was the goddess of justice, or the goddess of punishment and vengeance. And her name was Dike. It's a Greek word. She's the daughter of Zeus in their pantheon. And she was the one responsible to make sure that you didn't get away with what you did. So Paul, you may have escaped the ship, but you must be a murderer, so God's going to get you. How many of you grew up in a house like that, where God was this God who was going to get you? That's not my God. That's this Roman God that's the God of vengeance and punishment, Oh, do we have a God of justice? Somebody say, yes, church, we have a God of justice. But we also have a God of mercy who took our punishment on himself so we could be set free. They were looking at Paul. They were thinking, ah, now God's getting him. So they're watching him. Verse five, again, Paul being watched, he shook it off. He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. That's a great verse. I'm not gonna go into that right now. I just don't have time. But man, people in church can be biting, can't they? just like a viper. There's some venomous people in the body of Christ. I'm not sure they're Christian, but they're in the church. And they can have a forked tongue and do some damage with that tongue. And you know what you can do? You can shake it off and suffer no harm. That's what Paul did. However, verse six, they were expecting that he would swell up (laughs) or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. So catch this, they're around the campfire and this group of Maltese people is watching Paul. They're like peeking out from behind the trees going, is he dead yet? Is he swollen? You know, like taking his, uh, his pulse. Is he dead yet? You know, my wife is uh, very, very allergic to beef and pork and those meats. She got that tick-borne allergy to meat so she can't eat beef. And so usually if we have uh, meatballs around the house, they're some kind of fake meatball, like turkey or soy or something less than beef like that right? You can feel my pain. See, you're empathizing with me. Actually, you're sympathizing with me. You're sympathizing with me right now. You invite me to your house for meatballs and spaghetti, then you'll be empathizing with me. So I am, by association, not a meat eater. Uh, We don't have it around the house because this past summer, we got some beef meatballs. We were having some company, wanted to, to serve this. And the next day, we had had turkey meatballs for Helga. And the next day, my son is cooking up a nice pot of spaghetti for lunch for himself. And Helga, thinking he'd used the turkey meatballs, walks by, thinking she's going to be funny, takes a meatball of his and plops it in her mouth. And just as she's chewing it and swallowing it, he goes, that's a beef meatball. You know, it's a like slow motion as she goes, gulp. And we just looked at each other like, this is not good. I mean, she's very allergic. So we start calling the poison hotline. We start praying over her. We're like, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. And what do we do? We call poison control. What should we do? It takes about six hours or so for the effects to start being felt. She gets massive stomach cramps. And oh, she never had that much meat 
So we don't even know what to expect. And so we decided, let's just, let's go have lunch in Charlottesville. We'll make a day of it. <laughs> we'll go hang out near UVA so that if you start to swell up or die, we're close to the hospital. I mean, that's really what we did. We're like, well, let's be near, we pray, pop a Benadryl, and go away to UVA. So we're hanging out at Whole Foods, you know, having some lunch. And I'm like, how you feeling? You know, looking a little puffy. No, she, but you know what? She never got sick ever. Eight hours later, I said, how you feeling? She said, feeling good. All right, let's go home. So it could be that there was just no beef in those meatballs. <laughs> I won't tell you where we got them, but that's a possibility. <laughs> but I'm standing on the fact that the Lord protected her. She was able to shake it off without harm. And it was a pretty miraculous thing because she was absolutely fine. So I understand as these guys are watching and then they change their mind. Well, maybe he's not a murderer. Maybe he's a god. So reputation spreads. And verse 7, in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. This guy was probably the governor of the island. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. How many of you know that's not fun? The kind of dysentery that would be on the island is something that lasts for about four months in duration. Paul went into him and prayed. And he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. A couple final things and we'll close. Uh, Notice that the Apostle Paul uh, is never off the clock. This has been sort of a detour, right? Malta was never on his radar. And you could easily say, well, God, where I am right now, this is not in my plan. And God says, what it was in my plan. There were a bunch of sick people on the island of Malta that needed to be healed. And rather than going, oh, God, you know, I'm tired. Can I have a break already? There they are lining up. And Paul is serving the Lord by serving these people right on the detour that God had taken them on. You see, for you, it might be a detour, but for God, it's right where he wanted you. And wherever you go, That's the best place to serve God, wherever you are. Do you see that in the Apostle Paul? He didn't say, hey, look, look, I'm just shipwrecked. I'm just killing time here. I'm waiting to my real ministry in Rome, where I can share the gospel with the center of the universe here, with the Roman Empire. I'm waiting for Rome. No, that wasn't Paul's attitude. And it shouldn't be our attitude either. You know, you want to talk about empathizing. It's very hard to go anywhere in the county without finding someone that I know or have been in church with or somebody from the church So Helga and I would go out to coffee or out to dinner somewhere or to lunch and, hey, there's so-and-so from church and there's so-and-so from over here. So we run into people all the time. I go to Charlottesville and I see people I know in the grocery store or at a coffee shop or whatever. And it's not like, hey, look, leave me alone. I'm busy right now. I'm, I'm busy studying for God. You know, give me a break already. No, it's like, I'm always serving you, Lord. And sometimes that means that if I'm in this place and there's people in need, that's where God has me there for that reason. And notice also, second thing, that God could have stopped the storm. Couldn't he have? I mean, Paul could have prayed, God, stop the storm. I mean, Jesus calmed the winds and the wave for the disciples. And so God can do that. God could have stopped this typhoon right there. And certainly that's what we would be praying. God, stop the typhoon. God, let it end. But instead, God let Paul go through the typhoon, preserved him through the typhoon. And I want you to see this through the shipwreck. And what did he bring to Paul instead? People of unusual kindness. You ever had that situation where you're going through something really hard and there's just someone in your life that sends you a card 
Maybe it's got some money in it, and you're like, oh, that's amazing. Or maybe you're, you're at the cancer ward, or you're in the hospital, or you're somewhere, and somebody just shows you kindness. And you're like, God, you still love me. You haven't healed me from this thing, but you brought me kindness in it. And here's the final thing. Sometimes it's you that God wants to use to show kindness to somebody else in the middle of their situation, whether it's at the nursing home or the soup kitchen or at the school or to the teacher or whoever. They may be going through something really, really hard. And the last thing they need to hear is, I told you so. Or the last thing they need to hear is, you should have. What they need to hear is, hey, let me do something kind for you. Amen, church? Sometimes God shows himself in that way just by giving you unusual kindness.